0: Hello and welcome to this latest episode in our Link Leaders podcast series on greenwashing. My name is Sarah Martin and I am joined again by David Thomas and we are very pleased also to have with us today Doug Davison who is a partner in our U.S. litigation, arbitration and investigation practice and who is going to provide us today with the U.S. perspective on greenwashing risks.
1: It's great to be here Sarah and David. Thank you so much for putting this together.
2: Thanks, Doug. So in the series so far, we've focused on the regulatory response to greenwashing in the UK, uh, and perhaps then we could start there and explore how the regulatory landscape in the US is shifting to tackle greenwashing. Um, and looking first at the financial regulators, to what extent is greenwashing a priority for regulators like the SEC, uh, and what has been their approach to date to tackling greenwashing?
1: No, great, great questions, David. And uh, you know, there's so much to talk about. Let me start with um first you know what i spend a lot of time dealing with over here which is sec enforcement and in 2021 uh the division of enforcement announced the formation of a an climate and esg task force which um they said was to really look for esg related misconduct um and you know following Along with that, it wasn't only enforcement that decided they were going to look into these sorts of issues, but the examination division of the SEC also said that, you know, greenwashing is a major priority. And just as an example, uh, the 2023 examination priorities, just like the 2022 examination priorities, which are announced publicly, state that uh, the SEC examiners will continue to focus on whether, ESG products are appropriately labeled, and whether recommendations of those products for retail investors are made in investors' so-called best interest, which is the standard over here. And uh, if you follow this area at all, you'll know that uh, moving back from examinations and enforcement, the SEC proposed lots of rules, not only in the ESG space, um, but when we look in particular at climate, there is a huge rulemaking proposal that's been out there um, that re- would enhance, in the SEC's view, disclosure and reporting of um, climate-related risks and other information in companies' SEC filings. And would also there's also a set of rules that look to enhance and standardize disclosures related to ESG factors in the funds and advisor space, in particular the so-called um, you know, funds names rule uh, has an ESG focus because there has been some concern that certain funds may be called ESG funds and they're not really ESG funds, and I'll come back to that. But what the that rule in particular would identify um, ways in which um, advisors, to the extent they were touting promoting ESG strategies, would bucket their strategies into three different buckets, so-called integration strategies, a focus strategy, uh, and impact strategies. And I'm happy uh, if anybody has questions about the details, reach out to me on that. I'm not going to take the time to go into the specifics here just to mention them. Um, and I would also mention that even though the rules aren't final uh, and perhaps may be subject to legal challenge, and uh, we could do a whole podcast on the extent to which people against government regulation over here in the states are challenging the ability of agencies to do that sort of thing has been successful. Even just yesterday, a court uh, ruled against the SEC in part in a a crypto case, which is significant. Um, We have seen some major enforcement actions on greenwashing. So let me mention a couple. Um, First, uh, back in March of this year, the SEC announced a, a pretty significant settlement with a publicly traded Brazilian mining company. it was—it It is one of the largest iron ore producers in the world. The company uh, agreed to pay almost $60 million to resolve charges that arose from what the SEC alleged were false and misleading disclosures about the safety of one of the company's dams before the January 2019 collapse of that dam. It was a pretty bad um, set of circumstances arising from the collapse. What's notable about the case is that the complaint really focused on not necessarily just SEC filings, but the company's public sustainability reports, as well as other public filings. And the allegations were that those disclosures fraudulently assured investors that all of the company's dams were safe, despite knowing that um, that dam eventually collapsed. You know, that one did not meet internationally recognized standards for dam safety. And in fact, when uh, the case was settled, the enforcement division said that this case illustrated the interplay between the company's sustainability reports, again, not the SEC filings, but the sustainability reports, which are really on every company's website, uh, and the company's obligations under federal securities laws. Um, And um, that's why all of us know that we look at all the disclosures, not just SEC filings, when we're worried about what a company is saying about ESG issues let me just mention quickly, there's an, there are another, another group of cases that have come out in the investment advisor space. For example, in May of 22, the SEC charged a registered investment advisor for saying that its investments in ESG funds had undergone an ESG quality review when, in fact, uh, the SEC said it had not. And that you know goes hand in hand with the examination priorities that I mentioned up front. So there's a little – a quick summary of what the SEC has been up to. David, I guess, Sarah, do you, what do you think about all that?
0: Yeah, I mean, it's really interesting, it's clearly the SEC is paying a lot of attention to this space. There have been concerns that the focus on greenwashing by regulators will lead to potential green hushing. So that's where more companies deliberately communicate less detail about the sustainability work that they might be doing in order to minimise the risk of, of getting it wrong or attracting additional scrutiny. Is this a trend that you've observed in the US, Doug?
1: That is so interesting. I I have been reading more, you you all probably have too, about that word, green hushing. I never uttered it, but I've been reading a lot about it. And I I think it's probably valid. I think based on, um, and I'd be interested in what you all think, our discussions with clients, in particular over here, the the ones that are getting whipsawed between different regulatory regimes and political pressure, uh, and I'll come back to that in a minute. This is a concern, and I think you know it's a legitimate concern about whether companies are being perceived as too green, in a way, as Kermit the Frog used to say, it's not easy being green, or not green enough. And you know, so let me expand on that a little bit. I, you know, over here in the states, we have not only you know ESG proponents, we have anti. ESG proponents in the so-called red states, the Republican states. And we even now have anti-anti-ESG, so people pushing back even in those states and even Republicans. Um, And let me note a couple of high-level things that are going on. At the federal level, um, there's an anti-ESG working group, anti-ESG working group in the U.S. House of Representatives. In February of 2023, the chairman of the U.S. House Committee on Financial Services, said he was forming this Republican working group with the goal of combating ESG proposed efforts uh, and perceived regulatory outreach. And the the formation of that working group really is in response to the host of rules the SEC has been uh, looking to adopt that I mentioned before. And I should note that just this week, uh, the chairman of that committee has been holding hearings Um, and I've been reading about, um, what they've been saying and in particular, who, what companies have provided financial support to the politicians that are in either camp here, which is pretty interesting. So at the federal level, there's a a huge pushback at Congress. At the state level, you know, there's almost 50 different approaches and there are certainly repercussions for companies that are perceived to be boycotting oil and gas companies, um, several states have announced you know, issues for companies that are deemed to be, quote, boycotting. The Oklahoma state treasurer, for example, recently announced a list of 13 large financial institutions determined to be engaged in boycotts of oil and gas companies. And pursuant to that law, institutions on that list would be ineligible for state contracts and excluded from doing business with the state. Texas has a similar law and has gotten uh, a lot of media attention for it. And, um, you know, clients ask, well, what can happen? Can we get barred? You can certainly get barred. It affects not only your ability to do business in some sense, but also they took Texas brought an enforcement action basically against one of uh, the global financial services companies who paid almost a million dollars to settle uh, charges that the company was viewed by Texas as an energy boycotter. Uh, and therefore was ineligible to work with a school district in its bond offering under the Texas laws. And the school district had to then rebid the contract at a higher interest rate, causing it financial harms. Um, There are lots of other state restrictions. Uh, Some of those so-called red states have passed uh, or are currently contemplating prohibitions on um, companies from considering ESG factors when making decisions relating to investing public funds, issuing bonds, and even determining who receives government contracts. Um, Florida's law, for example, prohibits banks from discriminating against customers based on their political, religious, or ESG viewpoints. Indiana's State House of Representatives approved a quote, anti-ESG, close quote, bill um, that would prevent state pension funds from considering ESG factors and investing decisions. The Kansas State Senate approved a similar bill that prevents Kansas state officials from using ESG factors um, when, you know, investing public funds or deciding who receives government contracts. So a smorgasbord of ap- approaches, uh, and as I mentioned, some have teeth, some create just governance and, you know, issues for the clients and how to negotiate them, and some are being challenged.
2: So there is some pushback. Interesting. Thanks, Doug. And and just stepping back briefly to the regulatory response to greenwashing. So um, in the UK, that response has has not been led solely by financial regulators. We've also seen uh, competition and advertising authorities taking a very prominent role to protect consumers. Um, and I was just interested interested to know um, the extent to which that's something you're also seeing in the US.
1: Yes, David, no, very good question. It, it definitely is and so we've mentioned, I've been talking about really financial regulators, the legislative bodies. When you ask about, you know, protecting consumers, there's a, ho- the FTC, the Federal Trade Commission is the agency that comes to mind. And it has been very active. Uh, for example, it sued uh, two retail giants for allegedly uh, false marketing of rayon textile products as bamboo, the, the suit there argued that the companies made deceptive environmental claims about bamboo textiles uh, saying they were made with eco-friendly processes when, in reality, apparently the process required use of toxic chemicals and resulted in hazardous pollutants. And that company ended up paying not only FTC but DOJ several million dollars to settle. Um, So they're active in the enforcement states. They're also active in kind of giving guidance. The FTC has what's called the Green Guides for use of environmental claims. And it's requested, again, public comments on potential changes to the green guides. And these guides basically are designed to help marketers from making false environmental claims that would be unfair or deceptive to consumers under the laws that the FTC enforces. And um, I think, you know, this is important. I mean, so to the extent people would have comments, I encourage them to get involved. The comments, um, they're they're asking for comments on the continuing need for the guides, as well as issues relating to economic impact, um, accuracy of various uh, environmental claims, and how uh, those would interact with other environmental marketing regulations, because we do have a whole other regulatory regime that relates to the environmental laws. Um, So green guides are very active. Uh, I don't know whether this is Something that, you know, if they strengthen the rules and kind of raise the bar, whether that would be something that would also result in kind of enhancing the FTC's legal support to continue to bring claims uh, in this area.
0: Thanks very much, Doug. And of course, the U.S. is very well known as one of the most active markets for class action litigation. To what extent have allegations of greenwashing translated into consumer class actions in the states? And if you are already seeing those, claim, those claims, what is the basis for those claims?
1: Yeah, you've you've put your finger on the next I think thing that's worrisome for companies. It's very easy over here to file a lawsuit. Uh, lots of very smart and creative plaintiffs' lawyers. Uh, and as a result, in this space in particular, we continue to see a consistent rise in consumer class actions in the U.S. in and, and a variety of different sectors. The, most of them have been brought under state consumer protection laws. So I'll give you a couple examples. In May, uh, there was a putative class action complaint that was filed in Massachusetts state court claiming that a, one of the big box store chains sold a line of diapers, in an unfair and deceptive manner by labeling them as totally chlorine-free, despite actually having chlorine. Um, Also in that same month in May, a class action complaint was filed in uh, Missouri, in a federal district court in Missouri, claiming that a major athletic clothing manufacturer engaged in unfair and deceptive practices by marketing a sustainability collection, that uh, it was, quote, made with recycled fibers close quote, which claimed it reduced waste and its carbon footprint, despite its products actually being mostly made out of virgin synthetic materials, which are not um, so sustainable. And then uh, shifting gears a little bit, in New York, uh, in March of 23, a lawsuit was filed against a major laundry detergent manufacturer. I know this is not lost on you, engaged in alleged greenwashing, a little bit of pun there. Um, but, you know, the allegations were that that detergent uh, manufacturer was misleading consumers by saying um, its detergent used nature-evoking elements to artificially enhance its ecological image. Um, so lots of lawsuits in that area. Also lots of shareholder lawsuits. Uh, so, you know, and there's different types of those over here, as I know you know. For example, there's a derivative suit that's filed against a plastics manufacturer that alleged that a company issued several materially misleading reports about uh, what it claimed were environmental benefits of one of its company's products, including that it was 100% biodegradable in in a certain time period. Uh, And the shareholders are seeking damages for losses in the shares. Um, That came after the Wall Street Journal reported that many of the companies' claims in this respect are overstated and misleading. Um, And I thought this was an interesting one, too. In November of last year, a securities suit was filed in Maryland against one of the world's largest producers of wood pellets, which, uh, as you know, is a renewable alternative to coal. Investors there challenged statements that were viewed as touting sustainability as the foundation of its business. Um, And they relied on a short seller report, also very common these days, stating that the company was flagrantly greenwashing its wood procurement. And this uh, short seller report also said the company's claim to being a pure-play ESG company was nonsense on all counts. So I'm sure that resulted and is resulting in a challenge for the company and and its investors.
2: Excellent. Thanks, Doug. Well, I think that's all we've got time for today, but we've covered a lot of ground and it's been enormously interesting. So thank you very much for your time, Doug. Hugely appreciated. It's my pleasure. You guys ask great questions, so
1: happy to come back anytime.
0: Thanks for me as well, Doug. And um, we'll be back with another episode in this series soon. So thanks for listening and do look out for the next in the series.